are delighted this morning to welcome Dr. Deborah Fabian. Um, she is an orthopedic surgeon um, at Fort Polk, the Army base near Leesville, Louisiana. Um, she is delightfully and happily married to Leslie Fabian. She transitioned almost five years ago. They have six children between them, all of whom are still speaking to them, and uh, sadly a brother who is not. Um, we are very, very happy to have you here. Uh, please welcome Dr. Deborah Fabian. Well, first of all, drop the doctor part. That's the least important thing here. Driving, I drove up from Leesville this morning, and I have to tell you what it meant. First of all, I'm going to cry a lot during this, but what it meant to me to see your rainbow flag out there, it's wonderful. So thank you, Susan, for having me. And first of all, I want to thank my wife, Leslie, whose picture is, is with mine is on the front of the uh, order of service. Uh, she helped arrange this. Uh, she currently is up at our cabin in New Hampshire. And despite pleas on my part, she said, no, I'm staying in New Hampshire. Uh, but she does send her best wishes and did make me promise to mention her book, My Husband's a Woman Now, A Shared Journey of Transition and Love. I am an authorized salesperson, and I happen to have a few copies here, so if anybody's interested. It is difficult lately to turn on a radio or read a news magazine without some reference to transgender. We have hit the big time. And most of you are going to soon wish you'd been able to get in on the ground floor of being transgender. And by the way, in case you didn't notice, there's an election going on. The news is nonstop. Simply saying North Carolina now means something to all of us, and it's not just Kitty Hawk or the Duke Blue Devils. We either shop at Target or we don't, not because of their products or service, but we do it or not to make a political statement and a moral statement. We've coined an entirely new line of legal uh, proceedings, bathroom bills. Caitlyn Jenner is a household name. There has been an incredible change in society's awareness of transgenderism since my childhood, when I and many other transgender people had no one to turn to and nowhere to find any useful information. I'm amazed and delighted at this, but find myself also a little bit confused and overwhelmed at times, as I still am struggling to accept myself after six years of self-loathing and non-self-acceptance. I've tried to find some meaningful words to describe what it was like for me and will continue to be for others like me. I've been a member of the UU Church in Massachusetts for years, and as a UU, I subscribe to the philosophy of being able to, make, to take wisdom from many sources, from direct experience, from words and deeds of teachers and mentors, from the world's great religions, and from humanistic teachings. So I will turn to the thoughts of a well-known amphibian scholar, Kermit the Frog. Kermit sings a song entitled, It's Not Easy Being Green. In it, he ponders the problems of being green, what means to him, and the struggles involved. He, does, he talks of his yearning to be some other color, 
that is more acceptable to himself and to the world. He does eventually come to accept himself for his greenness. He even actually comes to appreciate himself for his greenness. We are compelled to feel compassion for Kermit's struggle and wish to walk or hop with him on his path to wholeness. I'm standing here speaking to you this morning because I'm transgender. And just as greenness, just as greenness is not easy to Kermit, it's not easy to be transgender. And perhaps that's really the only take-home message I need to give you. And just as Kermit has wished to be a different color for most of his life, for most of my life, I too have hoped that my transgenderism would go away. It has not. I am just finally learning to embrace it. The importance of what I'm going to say this morning is not about me. It is about the ongoing rate of suicidal ideation and attempts by young gays, lesbians, bisexual, and transgender, for which approaches 40%. It is about the countless GLBT youth who are abandoned by family and friends. It is about the support group that I went to in Nashua, New Hampshire, about four years ago, where roughly 90% of those in attendance were unemployed. A few were homeless, most were divorced. I will talk about my path to self-acceptance and wholeness, but I have been blessed by support and by loving, and I've survived. There are countless others who have walked in my shoes and have not. I'm on a lot of estrogen. You know what that does to you? <laughs> I'm now 66 years old. I was about eight or nine when I first put on some of my sister's clothes. And as I did so, I immediately knew two things. First, I knew I liked it. I felt good and at ease in this, these clothes. I felt a little happier while wearing them. Some part of me felt at home with this feeling, looking like this. The second thing that I knew, and I knew this with much more certainty and clarity than the first awareness, was that what I was doing was very, very wrong. I should not be doing this. I couldn't let anyone catch me. I could never reveal this to anyone. I grew up in the 1950s and 1960s in a family that armed itself with rifles for protection against ghetto blacks who my father told us were going to attack us out here in the suburbs. I heard all the homophobic slurs that he knew. Acceptance of diversity was at that time not even a concept for most of us, and I knew of no one I could talk to. I lived for many years occasionally finding female clothes I could put on, feeling good briefly, until guilt would overtake me. I would become ashamed of myself, of my actions and desires, but would not, could not discuss it with anyone. I had an absolute inner certainty that I was alone with this desire, that no one else could possibly understand, and certainly no one else could ever accept me. When I was in medical school in the early 1970s, I would sneak into the psychiatry section of the library. and look up transsexualism. I found it was a serious psychiatric condition. When I was doing my psychiatric rotation as a medical student, 
a transgender paper patient attempted suicide by jumping out of a window at the hospital. The teaching psychiatric resident with whom I was working commented very loudly, it's too bad that he, she, didn't kill himself. He is so highly disordered anyway. That was the thinking of the mainstream psychiatry at the time. So I continued to keep my secret very tightly to myself. I was a surgical resident in the mid-1970s when I had, had my first interaction with another person while I was cross-dressed. It was a police officer who arrested me, handcuffed me, strip-searched me, put me in a jail cell simply because I was cross-dressed in public, walking across the street. After being strip-searched in front of several laughing police officers, I was put in a jail cell and told they would be back shortly to take my mug shots and fingerprints. There wasn't a sink in the jail cell, there was a toilet. So I knelt in front of the toilet and used that water to wash the makeup off my face. It was that at the time. Sorry. Seemed preferable to me than having my picture taken as Deborah. But no photographs were ever taken and no fingerprints were ever done and no charges were ever filed because they decided that no, I didn't actually break any laws. Later that night, I wrote myself a prescription for a large quantity of sleeping pills. I stared at that bottle for several nights trying to decide when and how to take them. I think that having a one-year-old daughter at the time is why I am still here. This was the first time that suicide felt like a reasonable answer. It was not the last time. The second person to know two or three days later was the psychiatrist I saw. He told me that any time I felt like cross-dressing, I should put myself mentally back into the jail cell. I should relive the experience of being strip-searched, and I should reenact the experience of kneeling in front of the toilet to wash my face. That image and the alcohol I used helped me to survive for a decade or so. During that time, I tried to force the desire out of my mind, although it never really went away. I knew I could not act on this desire, so better to keep it to myself. Unfortunately, much of the rest of me and the rest of my thoughts and emotion I needed to keep hidden as well. I finally started therapy with a woman in 1986 who specializes in transgenderism. This was not easy. I used a fake name for the first two visits. I traveled a circuitous route to her office and waited outside to make sure I hadn't been followed. And this, this actually seems humorous now, but my paranoia and shame was paralyzing at that time. The next few years were tumultuous, to say the least. The paranoia and shame though ye that years of conditioning had uh, built in me, only very slowly peeled away. It was not easy to let go of decades of self-loathing. In 1987, my therapist invited me to present the topic of transgenderism to a women's group, something I did with great trepidation, but also with great excitement, as it was a chance for the first time to be outdoors in front of people as me. It was at that gathering that I met Leslie, 
my wife. Now, I was in no way looking to find anybody. I was already married, unhappily. I have four children. I did not need any other complications. But the universe sent me a different direction. Leslie's and my story together is remarkable. It is actually a fairy tale come true. I dealt with depression for decades. I know I was often short-tempered, withdrawn, and I know I was not easy to live with. But with Leslie, I learned about loving and about being loved. After years of Leslie's support for occasional cross-dressing, we both realized in 2009 that I needed more. Together, we explored transitioning and agreed that that was the path I needed to take. Leslie encouraged me. She actually pushed me. While writing her book, to deal with her own process and educate others. It's now been five years since I became Deborah. The book, which is truly a love story, was published in 2014. And I'm more in love with Leslie every day. Wow. Amazingly, each of our six children and the four spouses among them supports this enormous change in our lives. In April, we celebrated Leslie's and my 25th anniversary with a cruise to Mexico with all our children. Now, I've given a number of talks about transgenderism. I'll wash this for you. I've given a number of talks about transgenderism to many other churches and UU congregations who are becoming welcoming congregations. I help my own home church in Massachusetts in our process. So I know the introspective work you have done. I've spoken at many colleges, medical schools, and multiple hospital staffs. And this talk started out to be just another one of them. I was simply going to tell my story. And three weeks ago, when I gave Susan my title for today's talk, coming home to myself, I thought I'd have an easy time with it, telling you how wonderful it has been to finally live my life as I've always wanted to finally being myself. And about this time after saying that, I'd find myself back in a pew comfortable. But fate would have it, as fate would have it, my thoughts were almost literally hijacked, and the process is taking me in an entirely different direction. Bear with me during this journey. Now I say hijacked because of, of a couple of, because of a couple of events that occurred recently and just in the last three weeks. I liken these events to the three ghosts in Dickens' Christmas Carol. Each had a message for me. The first was exactly three weeks ago this morning, probably almost exactly now, three weeks ago, and really does involve going somewhere I had no desire to go in an airplane. I owned a small plane, and I was flying from Leesville to New Hampshire for a week's vacation at her cabin, the first time I'd ever attempted a flight this long in this plane. Now, skipping most of the details, I was forced by an engine malfunction to make a somewhat urgent landing at a small airport in Ohio. Now, after the excitement of the landing settled down and I could catch my breath, I realized that I had landed at Kent State University Airport. And as I sat in that small hangar, I had the opportunity to talk to some Kent State students who work at the airport. I became 
quite aware of where I was and of what Kent State meant to me. I've been amazed by the emotion that this awareness brought to me. Now, I'm sure many of us remember Kent State and what happened there May 4th, 1970. Four killed, nine wounded by the National Guard during an anti-war protest. I looked up the names of the students. Allison Krauss, Jeffrey Miller, Sandra Schuer, and William Schroeder. And I remember the name of the woman in that iconic Pulitzer Prize winning photo by John Philo, Marianne Vecchio, a 14-year-old young woman kneeling over the body of Jeffrey Miller. I am still moved by the horror in her face. As I sat in that hangar, I asked the students all who worked at the airport, what part of their lives does that incident affect? The event remains an important part on campus. There's an annual remembrance service and there are memorials around campus. It is woven into the everyday life of Kent State. But what I remember most about that event, while I was a student at William & Mary in Virginia, there was no uproar. In fact, several of us tried to use this event as a reason to lobby to have our final exams canceled. Not out of concern or horror, but frankly, out of sheer laziness. I cannot think of Kent State without that memory haunting me. And while you may be wondering what this has to do with transgenderism, I promise it does eventually. This was also the era of widespread racial tension in the days of the assassination of Martin Luther King and John F. Uh, Robert Kennedy. I remember flying home for spring break landing in Washington, D.C. a few days after Martin Luther King's assassination. I saw the fires set by the rioters in the aftermath. As many of us did, I lived through the Freedom Riders, Selma, the bus, bus, boycott, bus boycott, and so much of the civil rights movement. I'm not sure that there was anything I could have done. But what bothers me most about the memory of this time is that I did nothing. And I have in the past blamed my father for passing his racism on to me. I now apologize, perhaps mostly to myself, for my lack of action. Now, if my head had, been, had not been in the sand, I'm not sure whether I would have been a freedom rider or a National Guardsman. I'm not sure. But I did nothing, and this bothers me still. So the lesson from ghost number one is that I do not wish to look back at today's events and regret my actions or lack of actions. The second event occurred about four or five days after that. I received a phone call from a producer at Katie Couric Productions. They're about to shoot a documentary about the trans movement in cooperation with National Geographic and wanted to see if Leslie and I were interested in telling our story. <laughs> As I talked to her, I told her about Leslie's book, Leslie's book, My Husband's a Woman Now, and I became immensely proud of Leslie and her ability to be so clear in her writings about our love and our process together. Shamelessly, I'm going to plug her book. Alicia Vikander, this year's Oscar winner uh, for her Best Supporting Actress role in The Danish Girl, talked to Leslie during the production a couple of times. She was inspired by Leslie's book. Leslie's mentioned in the credits, and she's 
her name scrolled across the bottom of the screen during the uh, award ceremony at the, the Academy Awards as someone Alicia gave thanks to. And I told the producer a little bit about my past. And partway into that conversation, I realized how intensely proud I am of Leslie and, dare I say it, of myself. I was overwhelmed by my internal reaction. I told her that I am currently the plaintiff in a lawsuit, Fabian versus Hospital of Central Connecticut, for discrimination because they didn't employ me because I'm transgender. And I started to feel proud of myself again. We are making a difference. A recent ruling by the judge in this matter will, I am told, be a landmark decision for the future of transgender discrimination. This is not the end of the case. We go to trial in November. Wow, an entirely new frame of reference, feeling proud. So ghost numbers two's lesson, this new reference, pride, it's nice. It is, after all, June, which I really just learned more about this morning. It's National GLBT Pride Month. Hmm, I wonder if there's a connection. A third reaction that surprised me occurred as I watched a rerun of an episode of Grey's Anatomy. I found myself in tears as one of the characters was killed in a car accident, and I felt grief for his widowed wife, and I mourned his death. As I sat there with tears running down my cheeks, I wondered why I would have this, uh, this emotion for a fictional character. He doesn't even exist. And I realized that when we talked about the Mexicans, or the Muslims, or the transgender, or any other them, we are already setting the stage for discrimination and separation. I've been denied many other jobs because I'm transgender. I've been told, however, by my coworkers at Fort Polk that before I got there, there was a lot of concern about me, a transgender person working on an army base. But since I've been there, I've had numerous people, including the hospital chaplain, the commanding officer and many others go out of their way to tell me just what a welcome addition I am. I have patients stop in my office every couple of weeks, say, thank you for what you're doing. I had one come in the other day, close the door and say, I'm transgender too, thank you. A physician's assistant, whose office is right across the hall from mine, told me several months ago that initially he actively did not want me to come, but now, I'm just one of the guys. Perhaps not exactly the recognition I would aspire to, but, but I'll take it. So what does this all mean? Why do I find it important that I've had so much emotion, and what does that mean to my message? I cried when Dr. Derek Shepard died in the TV show Grey's Anatomy because he was a real person to me. So this is the very strong lesson from ghost number three. Judging a person based only on his or her label is dehumanizing and devastating. Knowing that same person as a person who has thoughts and concerns and dreams is the basis for all human understandings and acceptance. I give the figure 40% suicide ideation for GLBT used, and I am shocked. But if I think about just one of them, I can be moved to tears. And while I am most familiar with the struggles of the transgender, as John Dunn wrote and we read this morning, any man's death, gender neutral aside, any man's death diminishes me, never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee, 
There's an annual Transgender Day of Remembrance where we honor the memories of transgender individuals who have been killed the year before. The G and the L and the B and the T and the Q, etc., all need to be remembered. So I read a news story about a gay man uh, who killed himself uh, five years ago now, and I quote, this is Associated Press, CBS News headline, September 30th, 2010. The death of a Rutgers University, student, university freshman stirred outrage and remorse on campus from classmates who wished they could have stopped the team from jumping off a bridge last week after a recording of him having a sexual encounter with a man was broadcast online. Tyler Clementi, 18, jumped off the George Washington Bridge into the Hudson River last week. His body was identified Thursday after been found being found in the river a day before. Quote, had he been in bed with a woman, this would not have happened, said Lauren Felton, a friend. He wouldn't have been outed via online broadcast, and his privacy would have been respected, and he might still have his life. Another man said, he was a terrific musician, a very promising, hardworking young man. Musically, Tyler was destined for greatness, said a childhood friend who played in the summer academy with him. I've never heard anyone make a violin sing the way he did. Gay rights group say Clemente's suicide makes him a national example of a problem they are increasingly work to combat. Young people who kill themselves after being tormented over their sexuality, unquote. I relived my experience with the Kent State shootings, which at the time meant I only didn't need to study for my economics 101 exam. But when I investigated the event recently, I discovered this article written by the mother of Jeffrey Miller, one of the students killed and the student in that photograph. The, the article was published uh, April 27, 2000. And she wrote, quote, this week is the 30th anniversary of the killing of four students, including my son Jeff Miller at Kent State, at Kent State University by the Ohio National Guard. At a few minutes past noon on May 4th, I am once again observing this anniversary, an anniversary that marks the most tragic event in my life. And later she says, when Jeff called me on the morning of May 4th and told me he planned to attend a rally to protest the incursion of U.S. military forces into Cambodia, I merely expressed my doubt as to the effectiveness of still another demonstration. Don't worry, Mom, he said. I may get arrested, but I won't get my head busted. She was on. I, I laughed and assured him I wasn't worried. Later, the bullet that ended Jeff's life also destroyed the person I had been. And finally, to most people, Kent State is just one of those traumatic events that occurred during a tumultuous time. To me, it is the one experience I will never recover from. We hear, unquote, we hear the words so often, four dead, nine wounded, but Jeffrey Miller is not a statistic. He is a human being with a mother who loved him. And it is his death. So now we talk about building walls to keep out the Mexicans, and we talk about deporting 12 million illegal Mexican immigrants, a number that boggles the mind. I knew one of them, Jose. I knew him 35 years ago when I lived in Southern California. He came, did odd jobs for me. He lived in the shed in the back of a neighbor's yard. I didn't even know his last name. 
but I overpaid him because each time I sent, gave, I paid him, he sent that money home to his family in Mexico. I don't know what became of him. His story moves me now, and I can't help but think about him. I try to wrap my head around 12 million, but it only matters that I know one. Keep the Muslims out. What about Kayed, a friend of mine who's a Muslim, who grew up in a Lebanese refugee camp, who married another friend, Amy, a Jew? And the two of them worked together at an agency attempting bring, to bring about peace and greater understanding between their two worlds. You, now, you may be wondering what this has to do with being transgender, perhaps the most recently out-of-the-closet minority. As I said earlier, I did not expect to go here. Two days ago, I didn't expect to be here. When I have given similar talks in the past, by now I am sitting in the pew, thinking about coffee. But that's not with where this process has taken me, and it's not where it took you. The three ghosts have taught me some unexpected lessons. As my lawsuit is he heating up, getting ready for trial, the decision about the balance between seeking monetary award and seeking a more deeper seeking a deeper, more lasting moral victory, have been nagging me. The lawyers are arguing whether Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act covers transgender discrimination in the same way it covers discrimination based on race, religion, color, sex, and national origin. The judge in my case has ruled that it does. A major victory for all transgender people. But we do not need a law to tell us what is right and moral. Discrimination against an African-American was wrong before Title VII passed in 1964. The law only put an exclamation point on it. People in Connecticut, discrimination against transgender by people in Connecticut was wrong before the uh, 2011 Connecticut Civil Rights Bill was passed. Discrimination before that time may have been more difficult to prosecute it was still morally wrong. I've become interested in the term, the moral imperative. And with this as a guiding principle, decisions actually become very simple to make. Do what is right. Essentially, we live by the golden rule. Do we build a, whole, a, a wall? Do we hire a transgender person? Do we skirt the law, try to win on a technicality? We do not need a law or Title VII to tell us right from wrong. We know wrong when we see it, and right just feels better. So I think this is what I needed to learn from this and why my ghost appeared. I usually need to learn whatever message I put forth. Feeling proud, wow, an entirely new paradigm. Seeing others as individuals, not as label. This is hardly revolutionary. Taking a stand and acting on it, a new way of living for me. Thank you for helping me on this path. Namaste. Thank you. Wow.